right. Um, let's go ahead, pray once more, and then we'll uh, jump in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you yet again for another time that we can gather as your body and to consider another topic that is absolutely essential, and that is the unity of your body. Um, Father, I pray that you would instruct us and teach us uh, how it is that we are to imitate uh, the unity that you showed forth with your Father, um, that you would give us the grace to walk in that unity, to pursue unity with one another, uh, that we would uh, better glorify you and better show uh, you to the world around us. Uh, Lord, we pray for those who are not here, those who are sick, those who are traveling. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd be with them, that you'd protect them, that you'd comfort them and encourage them even through your word. Uh, that though they are not here with us, Lord, would you be near to them. Uh, we thank you in your name. Amen. All right, so we are continuing our study on the imitation of Christ, but at the same time, we're getting that much closer to being done. We have about uh, one week left, really. Uh, we have this week and then next week on Christ's uh, prayer and how we imitate him in his prayer life. Uh, this afternoon, um, I've put before us a title that is um, The Imitation of Christ's Unity. It is a title that is certainly open-ended. It's, you know, it makes us kind of think like Christ's unity with what or towards what and so forth. And that's on purpose because there is various aspects that we will look at um, as it relates to his unity, um, his example, his desire, and so forth. Um, safe to say, unity in the body of Christ in the church is something that is absolutely essential. It is something that um, we will hopefully come to see uh, what it shows forth to the world around us. Um, but what we read in John um, ten sixteen, we see that this has really been the the focus for the body of Christ, um, really forever. John ten sixteen says, "I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice." And they will become one flock with one shepherd. Uh, this is a, a, a verse that really, if you look at the cross-references in your Bible, you'll see that there would be a cross-reference to Ezekiel 34, 23. Uh, there we read, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And we certainly know that shepherd to be Christ. And uh, there is... In Christ, now one body made up of many members, many different individuals, but yet one body. Um, similar to last week, what I've done is kind of laid out the various scripture verses in relation to how they kind of match up with the various points that we'll be walking through. Uh, just so if you're taking notes, you kind of know what went where. Um, but along those lines, that's what we'll be looking at. We'll be looking at Christ's unity with his Father. Um, and kind of what that entailed, both from a functional unity perspective and an ontological unity. Um, in addition to that, we'll look at Christ's desire for ecclesiastical unity. Um, and then finally, we'll, we'll examine what ecclesiastical unity is, uh, what it looks like, and really um, doing so by walking through uh, primarily 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 through twenty. 
6, yeah, 12 through 26. So Christ's unity with his Father. This is a statement here. Christ had unity with his Father. I think there's nobody here that would dispute that. It's an obvious statement. But it's important... It's an important statement to make because it really helps us lay the groundwork for kind of the direction that we're moving in. Uh, we see that, 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 that he had unity uh, with his father as it's expressed in many verses uh, in uh, the Gospels. Uh, we won't reference them all, but we'll consider a few of them. And what we'll see is this. In some cases, for example, the reference to the unity he has is explicit. So, for example, let's look, John uh, 10, 30, uh, John chapter 10, verse 30, we read that he says, I and the Father are one, that's an explicit statement of the unity between them. Uh, just a few verses down, John ten thirty eight, we start to see this language of the Father being in him and him being in the Father. There we read, but if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And the same type of uh, statements we see being made in John 14, 10 and 11. Christ says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on, on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. But in addition to these explicit references, we also have um, more implicit uh, references related to the functional unity that they had with each other. What do I mean by functional unity? We kind of talked about like the economic trinity a little bit last week. That's right. And then functionally, right? So that'd be their actions, right? That's, that's kind of what we're looking at is their actions. And sure. And so when we look at something like John 5.19, for example, there we see where he says, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. These are verses, even John 6.38, for example, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. These are verses that we've looked at in prior weeks as well as far as showing... Uh, the way that Christ walked on this earth. But what we see here, too, is functionally, in the way that the things that they did, uh, they did uh, in unity with one another. So when we look at these verses, and we consider the unity that's being referenced, the question that could come to mind is this. What type of unity are we talking about? Is it, like I said earlier, the... Uh, ontological unity or is it functional or is it both when you look considering the verses that we just looked at is it ontological or is it functional it's both okay i agree with that okay um but why is it both Uh, 
Sure. So you're talking like really kind of hitting on like the functional aspect. And if they're unified here, there's no change in the Godhead. They're definitely going to be unified here and vice versa, right? So my question to you is which ones, like when we consider the verses that we just looked at here, uh, you know, these, what would be like the primary one in view? Do you think? Huh? Well, I'm saying which unity is it the, the ontological or the functional unity? Primarily. Yeah, I would say that this one is what is primary in view in these verses, their actions and their doing and so forth. Um, that's, in other words, like what we see is like the outworking of their unity being on display. Um, so when we consider aspects from these verses above, uh, this is what we see in John 5.19. He can do nothing of himself, only what he sees the Father doing. Um, he doesn't do his own will, but the will of this father who sent him. And so he doesn't come down and have his own will and own purpose, but his, but he is doing what the father desired him to do. He doesn't seek to glorify himself, uh, but to glorify his father, which we know was accomplished, right? John seventeen four, he has glorified his father on earth and completed that work, which he was given to do. Yeah, so yeah, so what we'll end up looking at, because even when I was talking to another brother about this, he's like, well, how is it that we would demonstrate in some sense like the ontological unity, right? Because we don't share in that unity. Um, but what we're looking at in this case is this is the primary. And in John 17, we'll look at this a little bit later as far as his prayer that the body would be unified. That's clearly when he says that they would be one as we are one. That's not ontological per se. We cannot share in that unity. So we definitely have an eye to primarily the functional unity. That means that ideally as the body, we would be one in our purpose with one another. We would have one focus, which is to glorify Christ and uh, to show him to the world around us. Um, and that's what I'm, I guess that's what I'm getting at is that really when we look at what we see in these verses, it is primarily functional unity that is before us. Um, for ex- what's that? Saying is like in John eleven or ten when he's saying, "I and my Father are one." Mm-hmm. He's clearly saying, "I'm God," and then they mm. pick up stones and everything, right? Yeah. And then, but here, not I'm not saying here he's not saying he's God, but he's but he's saying the Father, Frank, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that so the son may glorify you. So oh, yeah, yeah. He's making it a distinction, right? I mean, yeah. So there's still unity, yeah. Ontologically, yeah. But he's making a distinction where before he was actually kind of saying, "Well, God and me are one." Yeah. So he's still saying that there's a what we see with the Trinity in particular is this phrase unity and diversity, diversity and unity. And that is a phrase that is saying that though, though there's one essence, one God, three distinct persons. 
And so there is a distinction in their functional operations, right? The father sends the son, the son is sent and does the work given to him to do and so forth, right? So he is saying, I have accomplished that work that you've given me to do. And that's why I say functionally they were united in one purpose, which ultimately was the plan of redemption and, and uh, their glory and so forth. But what you had mentioned on John 10.30 is key, because if we look in that context in particular, um, what we see is that in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 10, Christ says, in some sense, like he will, not some sense, is what he says. he says. He says that no one can snatch the saints out of his hand. That's verse 28. And then in verse 29, no one can snatch them out of his father's hand. That's verse 29. And so that's where he then says, I and the Father are one. Yes. Did you have a question? No, I was just going to reiterate that, that he, act, he indicates that at the end of saying that, that's what, out, of the son, out of his hand and out of the Father's hand, he says, the Father and I are one. That's right. Is he not just um, uh, grounding the functional unity in the ontological unity when he's saying that? Yeah, I think so. And that's why I think it's both that's in view. Primarily this. Right, But ultimately, what we see is that lying behind this are these claims to deity. That's so much so that when he was stating that, um, you know, I only do the things I see in my father, right? The Jews understood right before that the claim he was making. Why? How do we know that? That's right. They wanted to basically take him and put him to death because of the claims that he was making. And so it wasn't just a, well, functionally we're unified, but he was also making himself equal to God. Yeah. Yeah, ontological is just like the essence of God, like his, his one, his, his being. Yeah, his nature kind of entails more, but yeah, like one essence, yeah. There you go. Oh, that's clear. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's just the study of, be, of being. But it is different than existential. Yeah. One, in, in regards to this John 10, uh, 30 verse, one uh, commentator had stated that in light of the fact that Christ, you know, Christ does what he sees in the Father, the idea that is present here is ultimately that the Father stands behind uh, the preservation of the saints as well. And so you see that in the purpose of redemption, like they're all involved through and through uh, in a unified fashion. <clears throat> and so that's what we're saying is that un- ultimately there's a unity in their purpose and what they're seeking to do. Um, he and his father, he is saying, is one in purpose. One Another commentator states, rather, on this regard, rather, Jesus and his Father are perfectly one in action in what they do. What Jesus does, the Father does, and vice versa. It is by this example uh, that we are to imitate this. Uh, it is not a seeking to exalt ourselves, a seeking to glorify ourselves, or to do our own will, or to make a name for ourselves. Right? Christ didn't come to do that. He came to do his Father's will. And we have a task that has been given to us, ultimately, as followers of Christ. And it's not centered on us um, and ourselves and and how we're known, but it's instead to ultimately to glorify God. 
to be one body that is operating in unity for him and his kingdom. We kind of jumped ahead with the ontological unity aspect, um, but what we see here, when we consider the context of the whole book of John, the reason I say that this is also in view is because in the context of the book of John, what we see is the, primary, uh, the primacy of Christ in his deity. There are a number of passages where Christ asserts, affirms, and claims to be God, even in the passages that we have just read. Um, and as I said, the Jews understood that claim um, because they wanted to put him to death. And it is within the ontological uh, you know, trinity and, and, and the unity there that we also see um, that phrase I mentioned, uh, unity and diversity and diversity and unity. One essence, three distinct persons with differing roles. Uh, the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Father, the Holy Spirit's neither the Father nor the Son. Uh, three distinct persons, one essence, diversity and still unity, unity but also diversity. And so what does this have to do with the imitation of Christ and his unity? Anybody have an idea of what this would have to do with Christ and his body in particular? The body being the church, obviously. Are we one body? Okay, and how are we constituted? Many members, right? So that's what's interesting here is that as the body of Christ, we're united, but we're also distinct members. There is therefore within the body of Christ diversity in unity and unity in diversity. Uh, this is what we even see in Romans 12, 4, and 5. Uh, there we read, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And so we'll get to this aspect of the differing members in the body a little later when we look at 1 Corinthians 12. But the point here is that with, when the body of Christ is walking in unity, that is, displaying unity, um, the very nature of the triune God is being manifested to the world around us. Um, we do not share in that ontological unity, as I said earlier. There's no like, participation, participation in that. But in some sense or in some way, that's what we're showing forth. Um, before the watching world is the very essence and nature of God in that sense. Uh, when we display true, genuine unity, despite our diversity, and diversity wrapped in unity, it, that's what we're putting before them. Um, how does that look? I mean, would they be able to look at us and say, oh, that's the nature of God? Um, Sadly, no. No. No, but let's say we're doing it. They wouldn't necessarily picture and be like, oh, that's the ontological trinity that they're showing forth, right? But at the same time, it's similar, uh, even, you know, Chris had said it'd be similar to the same way of marriage being a picture of what? Christ and the church. You know, we m display that uh, in marriage, and it ultimately is a picture of Christ and the church, and that may not be something that the world, like immediately, like, oh, like, that's what marriage is supposed to be. So there's going to have to be some level of instruction and teaching behind it. But nonetheless, that's what's happening, and that's what's remarkable. When we're not walking 
in unity and displaying unity, uh, we're really not showing forth, um, you know, God to the world around us in that sense. But isn't that the, I mean, at least in my opinion, but I think that's the problem, at least here in America today, is there is no, there is no unity in the church. We can't even decide who Jesus is. I mean, I'm talking in the church as a whole. Mm. <clears throat> well, church to church, I mean, you know, it's like half these churches, Jesus is like, yeah, he's like the boyfriend, the whatever, or he's just like, hey, he's the ultimate nice guy because he was willing to die. We should be, you know, for everybody, we should be like him. Yeah, so like at some Jesus and, and there's your salvation. At some point, you'd have to look and say, are those true churches if they're not properly preaching and teaching Christ right. and so forth, right? Correct. Um but the church ultimately should be united and unified. And we'll discuss what this unity is. We'll look at different aspects of how it kind of plays out here in a minute. Gina? Gina. So going back to talking about the Trinity and unity, mm. the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, do you think that they have different wills or that they must? Or do they Well, ontologically, they would have the same will. Um but we clearly see that Christ, you know, there was like his will and the Father's will. And he subjected his will like to the Father's will. But ontologically, they have one will. Yeah. But that's a little different with Christ because he was human, fully human at the same time. Like when you think about the Garden of Gethsemane, that's a little different. Right, but he submitted his Correct. will to his Father's will. He said, not my will, but your will be done. But he's not. Right. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, prior to whenever he was born, he was not fully human. He was that's right. He was fully God. That's correct. So this kind of unique. That's, yeah. I'm just saying, like, that's why I'm saying ontologically yeah. it was one, right. and his person it would have been uh, there would have been the two. Yeah. So his desire for ecclesiastical unity. Uh, we've really kind of just looked at the fact that obviously he was unified and united with his father. Um, but we haven't necessarily seen anything that says like, that's what we're to imitate. Um, but I think we do in John 17, if you want to turn to John 17, um, verses 20 through 23 is what we'll be reading. And I think it's here in his high priestly prayer that we see the language of imitation. This is what we read. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also, or that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Uh, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So there's a number of things to to, to note here. Uh, Quite simply, first we see Christ's desire for ecclesiastical unity. He desires the body to to be one. Um, and in this passage, even as was referenced earlier, this one um, has reference to one in purpose, one in action, 
uh, that the way that we interact with one another uh, would be one of unity. Secondly, what we see here is the language of imitation. Uh, In verses 21 and 22, we see, if you remember from the very first lesson that we did, and we kind of laid the groundwork for the imitation of Christ, do you remember that that language was? That kind of clues us in on imitation? Don't worry, it's recorded. You can go back and listen to it. But it is... That's right, just as, even as, or as I have done, so should you. And that's what we see here. We see the just as, even as language that provides us with a reference as to what the unity uh, entails or what it should look like. It's not just how we think unity looks. For example, it's not unity as it's defined by the world. Uh, It's not unity for unity's sake. There's a purpose behind it. Uh, It's not just to avoid strife. Uh, The world's focus on unity is driven by these temporal desires. They just want to go along to get along. Um, So they have their purpose in that is selfish. They simply want to be tolerant. uh, And they cloak that tolerance with unity in a sense. They say, oh, this is unity, when it's really you're just being tolerant. Don't get in the way of what they want to do. That is not unity. Um, Tolerance does not equal unity. Rather, the unity that is to be exhibited by the church has an example in place. It is the unity between the Father and the Son. Uh, That unity that you see demonstrated there. That just as they are one, we too may be one. And J.C. Ryle states this, just to be crystal clear. um, We must carefully remember that the unity between the Father and the Son is one which the unity of believers cannot literally attain to. However, he says, they must imitate it. And so that's what's in view here, is the imitation of this unity and considering what that looks like. So the question is, what is this unity? Uh, What type of unity is in view? And I have two headings. First, uh, it's uh, positional. What do I mean by the unity being positional? Yeah, um, that's a result of him of us being in him. But that's true. It's positional, like ultimately that we are in him. Okay, and so that is a unity because we are in him. Can that unity be disrupted? Can that ultimate unity be disrupted? No. Doesn't matter how you feel, what your emotions are that day, and it doesn't even necessarily matter how it's being like on display day to day in the church, and with each other. That is a unity that ultimately um, cannot be disrupted. It's unbreakable. And that's ultimately what we see, that our unity is in Him. He says in verse 21, that they may may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us. It's based on the fellowship, uh, our, our fellowship with Christ and His Father. We are in Him. 
And so it can never change uh, because it's based upon our union with Christ. It's not based on, like, we didn't put ourselves into that unity, and we're certainly not taking ourselves out of that unity. But the unity is also practical. It's a practical unity. What do you think is meant by the idea of it being a practical unity? Same goal or or really it's kind of how it's lived out. Uh, and it is something that stems from our positional unity. Edmund Clowney uh, says this, the vital union of Christians with Christ also demands our unity. So our vital union with Christ already gives us this unity, but it demands this unity, the way that we walk with one another, the way we interact with each other. Again, this goes back, if you know the previous weeks, what I've said, that if we claim the name of Christ and we profess to know him, there's inherent responsibility attached to that. It's not just a you name the name of Christ and you're off doing your own thing. Uh, it's not that you name the name of Christ and you're separate from the body of Christ. Um, no, you're part of that body. And um, the responsibility in this case is that we are walking in unity with one another. And finally, what we see here ultimately is there's a purpose given. What is the purpose of the unity that we see in these verses? It's mentioned twice. Well, it's for it. What did you say? To bring glory to God, most certainly. Uh, that is the, the, the greater end. Um, that's right. It's that the world would see uh, and know that Christ was sent by his Father. <clears throat> what is amazing about this is when you think about how the world walks, the world does not, no matter how much it tries to say, have unity. It's tolerance. But it, they're not unified. They're not united. And what is amazing, the way that this works and how this gets displayed to the world that the world may see is that when you take a group of sinners that are as diverse as they can be in their interests and their desires and their personalities and their backgrounds and you make them into one body and they're united together, walking in unity, putting aside differences such as Jew and Greek, which we'll look at in Romans 12 and they're putting aside all of those things that normally divide the world it manifests to the world before us that this is a work that only christ can do the world tries to replicate it by saying coexist and do all these different things but they cannot replicate it this is only a work that comes through christ changing uh people completely radically so much so that we're a new creation and really the question is, is like, do we see it that way? Do we realize how vital unity is in the body? I think unfortunately sometimes uh, we lose sight of that and we allow other issues to arise or we don't deal with issues properly or whatever the case may be and it can easily, completely break apart unity 
And as we've discussed, then we're in a sense walking in opposition to God and his purposes and what we should be uh, as the body of Christ. That's what's in view here. And so we've considered now um, really just the example of Christ and his unity. Uh, We see his desire for that unity expressed. But we have to consider now, what does this practically look like? It's not enough just to know it, um, but what does it look like? And so I want to look at 1 Corinthians 12, if you guys want to turn there. Um, But before we walk through that passage, there's a couple comments I want to make as it relates to unity uh, in general. First, unity is not to be taken for granted. It's not um, something that we just say, oh, it's going to be there tomorrow. No issue. Um, Unity in the body of Christ, except by the grace of God, is something that is extremely fickle. Something that can change and be damaged like that. All it takes, ultimately, is a whisper to arise, discontentment to fester, bitterness to take root, and the functional unity of the church can be absolutely shattered. Secondly, unity is something that must be maintained. And it is something that must be actively pursued. Uh, This is uh, what we see throughout Scripture in the exhortations and the commands to maintain unity. Uh, Ephesians 4.3 gives us a picture of what is necessary. We read there, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice it doesn't imply that it's going to be easy. There's a diligence that's required. To pursue unity. There is a work that is needed. It doesn't just happen. It takes work and effort. And finally, uh, the preservation of the unity of the body of Christ is the responsibility of every single member. Every single member. It's not something that's just left to the elders and deacons to try to like make sure is maintained. Uh, but it's something that everyone uh, partakes in. Uh, Even in light of the verse that we just read in Ephesians, for example, who's he writing to? Is he writing just elders and deacons? Who's he writing to? The whole church. And what does he tell the whole church to do? What's that? Well, to, to diligently maintain unity, right? To be steadfast in that. So the question is, what does that mean? Well, it certainly means that we're not to sit back and wait for others to make the first move. We don't just like kind of sit on our hands and say, okay, like other people need to do this and do this before I do this. Um, We have individual responsibility. We're one body, individual members, right? And so we individually have a duty to maintain unity. Uh, there's no excuses in the sense of, oh, my personality is this, or my interests are this, or right? But it's ultimately all of us together seeking to maintain that unity. Question for you. Mm-hmm. Can you be unified and disagree on something? Sure. I mean, you can disagree. That's going to happen, especially this side of heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fair point. Like a, an 
So there's unity that's been commenced because of our position in Christ, and then there's unity in some sense in the eschaton that's going to be consummated, which we will then fully agree on everything. All the doctrinal divisions and all the things will be gone, and we will be one uh, in the true sense of uh, what unity is to look like. But sure, you can be, you can have differences, um, but hopefully what ultimately happens is that, that those differences don't lead to then division. That in some way, by walking in love and things of that nature, there's some sort of understanding or agreement or you realize, okay, it's not really that big of a deal or, you know. Um, but there's certain things that, sure, doctrine can divide. And it should. I think that there's true doctrine and there's extremely heretical doctrine. And it, unity doesn't just mean you accept all of that either. Um, and so there's much wisdom that's needed in trying to discern how to handle all that. And I think what we have to understand is that when we go through that, we need to kind of, well, we need to, not just kind of, we need to put pride aside, right, and seek humility with one another and walk through those things together. And the ultimate goal is that somehow at the end of this, we're unified as much as possible and uh, ultimately seeking, in that case, then to walk to the glory of God with one another. And that drives our interaction with each other, that I'm not going to talk to Russell and be like, okay, it's got to be like my way or the highway, and you know, um, and if you don't agree with me, then fine, you're off to the side, and I'm not having anything to do with you. We'll actually address that. Um, you had, in this case, in 1 Corinthians 12, you have these stronger members, if you will, saying they have no need of the feet, and that is not the proper view. It's actually truly these weaker members that are absolutely necessary to the body, um, so we'll walk through this. Now, obviously, this is not going to at all be a complete and full exegesis of this passage. It is really just a few practical points to draw out from the verses kind of as we walk through them. Uh, so verses 12 through 14, is there somebody that would like to read those verses? Uh, 12, 12 through 14. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So he, through this section now, Paul is taking the analogy of the body and comparing it or using it to teach on the body of Christ. Uh, even so much so, it's like when we read that, it says, uh, you know, though they are many are one body, so also is Christ. That's an interesting like way to essentially tie Christ to the church. Uh, that that is ultimately what in view is his body as the church. Um, and so what we see here, even as we've discussed, is a very plain statement on unity and diversity, diversity and unity. Um, uh, unity doesn't mean that we're all exactly the same person. We're individual members, and those members we will come to see are essential. You can't just have a body that's just like all arm, especially you. <laughs> Um, but here, <laughs> but here, um, in this particular passage, um, we established that Chris has really short arms. <laughs> That's why I said that. <laughs> um, but what we see here is that the things that typically divide in the world, ethnicity, social status, uh, I mean, it could be age, it could, you know, whatever position we are, um, those things divide in the world. But those things that so easily divide in the world in Christ are done away with. That we no longer are divided by those things, even though ultimately in the church we currently see the uprising of the social justice movement. And that is an absolutely false gospel. Uh, there. To me, it's absolutely clear in Scripture. We see it in Ephesians, the two becoming one, and so forth. Uh, here, we're looking at the fact that we're one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. And so, uh, you know, be aware of that, that that is not according to Scripture at all. But unfortunately, you see it creeping back into the church um, today. Um, verses 15 through 20, would somebody like to read that? Okay. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any more as a part of the body. But if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any more as a part of the body. The body would, sorry, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? Hmm. So what we see here is that there was apparently some in the Corinthian church that thought that because they weren't an eye or an ear, um, that they weren't a part of the body. Um, but just because they would claim that or think that, Paul corrects their thinking. That just because you would assert, oh, I'm not part of the body, doesn't mean you're not part of the body. And so the way that that would play out here, for example, would be somebody who would say, well, because I don't go and do this, or I don't have this gift, or that gift, or this ability, then I'm not part of the body. Or if I'm not like a prominent member, or whatever the case may be, then I'm not part of the body. You don't cease to be any less a part of the body because you're not in a particular role or have a particular type of gifting. Uh, regardless, um, 
just because you may think that doesn't mean uh, that that's the case. In fact, we need the different parts of the body. The body can't just be an eye or it can't just be an ear. Otherwise, there'd be no hearing or no sight. And so what we come to see is that every member of the body is absolutely essential. Every member is vital. And so the question is, is do we recognize that? Do you see yourself as vital to this body? Um, one commentator says, a well-functioning body requires a multiplicity of members with a multiplicity of functions. Uh, it's our different, right? We're not walking with our hands. We have legs and feet to walk with. And so we're not all going to have the same giftings and same, you know, uh, abilities. But the Lord has so fit us together um, according to His desire. That's what we even see in verse 18. Uh, that he has placed the members of the body just as he desired. There is a sovereign placement that has taken place, that I am here for your exhortation and your building up, and you're here for my exhortation and my correction and my teaching and praying for me and so forth. That that is why he has placed us together, to complete the body. Uh, And that's what we even see at the very end, right? It's like if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. That's... That's how it is uh, with the body. You know if a member of your body is suffering. And if you notice that it's suffering, what do you try to do? Or if you know that it's injured, what do you do usually? You comfort it. You seek to help it. You seek to restore it. You try to get it back to operating the way it should be. And that's how it should be in our body. It's, we should be so united. We know when a member's suffering. We know when a member's rejoicing. And we're there with them in each of those instances. Okay, verse twenty, verses 21 through 27, a longer passage. Anybody want to read that? Gina, you got that? Yeah, so notice the difference here. In the previous section, what we essentially looked at was members who didn't consider themselves a part of the body based on not having a particular type of gifting or whatever the case may be. Here, we are looking at um, really members saying, thinking that they are in such a position because of the giftings they have or the knowledge they have, the abilities they have, that they don't need other members of the body. Big distinction there. There's one, it's not, so, not that individual thinking they're not a part of it. It's a member of the body saying, I don't need this other part of the body. Um, and what we must understand is that all parts of the body are needed. Um, so much so that Paul draws a strong contrast here when he says, um, on the contrary, that's a strong adversative in the Greek. Um, and this is what Chrysostom points out. He says, 
before the word weaker, Paul uses the word seem. That's key. They seem weaker. Uh, But notice before he mentions that they are necessary, they're no longer any descriptive terms. It's not, well, they seem necessary. They only seem or appear weaker, but they're absolutely necessary. Um, That is something we need to understand that no matter what position we may be in, we need one another. And uh, we need to exhort one another and build one another up that the Lord has gifted us all uh, in various manners. And because one is the preacher and another quietly encourages or gives or serves doesn't make them any less essential. Yeah, and what we need is like, that's, that's right. And that's a good word, intentional. There's got to be a purposeful action in doing that. It's not just to be like, to know it, but to actually do it. But what we see here too is that there's this bestowing of honor um, and so forth, even on the weaker. And so what that would seem to indicate is that those who are strong or consider themselves strong, like to go out to those members who are weak and to build them up. Um, and this ultimately, you know, it's easy in the church to become very comfortable with who you hang around, who you know, who you associate with. And it is easy in churches for cliques to form. Um, cliques have no place in the body of Christ. Let's be very clear on that. That doesn't mean there cannot be close relationships. We see that even with the 12. There was 12, and then there was 3, and then there was 1. Okay? Even with David's mighty men, there was 600, and then there was 30, and then there was 3, and so forth. So it's not that there cannot be close relationships, but those relationships can't become so favored, so focused, that it's to the neglect of the rest of the body. And it's very easy to do. I know because I've done it. I have done that at times, where you're so comfortable with who you're around that you neglect what you're saying, being intentional with the other members of the body. Um, But if you think about it, if you favor one aspect of your body too much, such as just one leg, like the other muscles experience atrophy, and they become weaker, and they're more prone to uh, injury and so forth. Well, same thing. If you're only focusing and narrowing your view to a specific group of people and doing it to the neglect of the rest of the body, even here, the body will experience spiritual decay. And so there is ultimately a need uh, that we are guarding ourselves against this, being intentional, as even Russell said, in our actions, um, to guard against the things that can so easily destroy our functional unity. And I specify functional because our positional unity, that won't be disrupted if we're truly in Christ. But what can be is the practical functional unity of the body. And so we just need to be on guard, um, on guard against that. I am out of time. So let's, uh, normally, I, if you have questions, I guess hit me in the hallway, but we got to go.